So let's uh, open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, anybody here tonight who was not here last week, raise your hand, please. Okay. I just wanted to know. Um, well, but there's... that there. In the event, there were two handouts that we had last week. Don't have one for tonight, but if we had, a, we had two handouts for last week. If you didn't receive them, would you raise your hands and the ushers will bring you something? You're going to have to keep them up for a while because the usher or ushers will be there soon. I'll just keep talking, but keep your arms up if you love your neighbor. It's going to be great. Um, these these two handouts that uh, John and Brad are going to be bringing around are, uh, yeah, two handouts. One of these handouts is a list of books um, that you may find interesting as far as um, uh, Hebrews. And in the event you're not a, you know, a commentary person, that's fine. Some of these are really big commentaries, and some of these are real easy to digest kinds of commentaries. Um, so, so one of them is a list of books, and the other is uh, a list of the 12 verses in, in Hebrews. 12 times in the book of Hebrews is the statement, well, is the word better. Jesus is better. Um, and uh, so uh, you guys, are we getting there? Okay, everybody's going to get them now. Um, so those are just for your, they're not, they're not to follow the study, they're just resources for you. Um, all right, just a quick review. I think for all of us it's good. One of the reasons I suppose sometimes that we're confused about the book of Hebrews, and I won't ask who's confused about the book of Hebrews, but I know that very often people are confused by this book. Um, first of all, the, the audience you know, is, is, ought to be pretty clear. They're Jewish Christians. So much of the New Testament, even though you know, Jesus, you know, our, our Messiah is Jewish, uh, the apostles were all Jewish, right? The early church, all Jewish. But once the church moves out of, you know, for the most part, moves out of Jerusalem, that first major church, of course, in the Gentile church is Antioch, a very large Gentile church. And then from there, whether we're talking the churches Galatia, we're talking about, you know, Ephesus or Philippi, etc. These are all Gentile churches. There's a Jewish presence for the most part in all of those churches, but still, um, they're Gentile churches. And so we, because we're Gentiles, we have a tendency to just slide over, kind of forget the idea that there's a major Jewish component in the church. Um, and that's sad because what has happened in so much of the church over the years is this idea of replacement theology has come in. I'm not talking about that tonight, but that is a major issue for, for us um, in, in America and certainly in the West, this idea of replacement theology that, that the church has replaced Israel, which is not true, of course. Uh, but in any event, so uh, when we look at this this letter, some people like to say it's not an epistle, or it is, you know what, it is an epistle. It just doesn't have um, the salutation in the beginning that you would expect in some of these other letters. But it is a letter, and it's, and it's written to Jewish Christians. The question is, where are they? Uh, could they, could they, they may be in Jerusalem. They may be in Rome. Rome had a significant percentage uh, of its population, or the, the, the church in Rome had a significant percentage in the congregation that were Jewish. In any event, it's the first, the book of Hebrews is the first of eight letters in your New Testament that a lot of Christians don't realize are actually called the Hebrew epistles. Hebrews is the first of them. James, you know, who's, who does James write to? He writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, right? Uh, so th those are not Gentiles, they're, they're, they're Jewish. Uh, so Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. All eight of them are, you arguably are written to a, uh, a Jewish audience. It doesn't mean they're not applicable to the rest of us, but um, if you read them in that context, in a, in a, Jew, in a Jewish light, you start to see some things that you may not have seen before. Hebrews is quite obviously that. When was it written? Sometime between 63 and 70 AD. Some of you probably don't care too much, but I think it's important for your studies. Uh, certainly it's written before 
the fall of Jerusalem in 70 because the, the temple is still standing as he writes it. So um, the big question, I'm not going to go through it again, but went through it last week, but the big question for everybody seems to be authorship. It's, there's, there's, it doesn't say who wrote it, but many people, actually I do need to say this, many people believe, I'm one of them, believes that this is written by the Apostle Paul. Others will say, well, it doesn't say the Apostle Paul. Well, go back and, and look at the notes or, or your notes from last week or listen to the, um, the recording. But there are a lot of marks in it that really do suggest that it was Paul. The early church believed that it was Paul. Um, the people in this day and age who tend to think that it may have been someone else who wrote it are, are people who believe it in this day and age. People who believe it might have been Barnabas or, or it might have been Apollos. Some people even believe it may have been Priscilla, as in Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they believe that, but there's no evidence for any of that. If there's evidence for anyone, the evidence would be for the Apostle Paul. So I'll leave it there. If you're interested, and you can look up more of that or you can ask me some questions later. But here's the deal. Here's what the book of Hebrews does not deal with. The book of Hebrews does not address in any, in any very clear form what would be called soteriology, or which is just a fancy word for how to get saved. Okay, it's not dealing with that. The writer is writing to Christians. He's writing to Hebrew believers. They're already Christians. They're drifting away. They're, they're, they're getting caught up in, it could be, you know, their, their, their families who are saying, you know, you're crazy. You've gone off and followed this, this Messiah. He's not, he's not the Messiah we've been waiting for. They're seeing, you know, all these people going to the temple all the time and, you know, involved in temple worship, and they're being drawn back, you know, just, and a lot of us have experienced some of that in our own lives in some ways. You know, maybe our families, we, you know, we, we want to get together with our, our families at Christmas or uh, some of these other times in the year, but maybe they don't really want us around anymore because we're the religious nuts. Uh, you know, it could be that. Well, that, that's a very small sense of what these Hebrew Christians were experiencing because many of them, well, really, probably almost all of them have been cut off from their families, cut off from Israel. Their families and the society want nothing to do with them. And so there's this very real desire to go back. And the author's saying, don't do it. But here's the problem. Most of us get confused. And if you've read through Hebrews any number of times, you've come across certain passages, which are called the warning passages. Most people call them the warning passages. And they, those, those passages, like chapter 6, part of chapter 5, chapter 10, some others, um, are difficult for us because we read them, and it feels like he's saying, if you continue this way, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with it when we get there, but I just want to say that up front. That's not what he's saying. He's not with dealing with the question of, are you saved or aren't you saved? He's dealing with the assumption that all of his readers are Christians. He's dealing with a question that we dealt with in, in the book of Revelation, those last chapters in Revelation. This whole matter of the rewards that are ahead. He's dealing with the questions of the kingdom that's coming, and where will you stand in the kingdom? Will you have reward from, from the king in the kingdom? Many of us in the church today don't deal with that question. Sadly, this, <laughs> we should be dealing with that question. We think it's great. You know, a person gets saved, they walk up the aisle. That's the starting gun of the Christian life. The rest of the Christian life, call it a walk, call it a race, whatever you want to call it, is about following our king the one who, he, you know, he tells us what to do. He prompts us by his spirit. And he says, I'll reward you in the kingdom to come for your obedience to me now. And uh, so really, in many ways, that's what he's dealing with here. I could say one more thing. Uh, I mentioned it last week, so let me say it again. I think a lot of times we don't think about our salvation the way I'm about to say. There are three aspects to our salvation. And I know they're, you know they're big words that we're not used to using. Not that you're afraid of big words. What I'm saying is we're not used to using these words. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Those are the three aspects of a person's Christian life. When that person walks up the aisle and trusts Christ, 
The Bible says you're justified. In other words, you're, you, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, your sins are washed away, you have entered into, you are born again. When you are born again, you are justified, is the idea. We receive no righteousness of our own, it's the righteousness of Christ that we receive, right? And we're called justified. You can remember it as just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God looks at us. But then as we walk with the Lord, there's the matter of sanctification. As the Spirit works in us and really requires us to be obedient to his Spirit, then we're being sanctified. We're being conformed into the image of Christ as we walk through our lives. None of us has arrived as long as you're on planet Earth and you're still breathing, you haven't arrived yet, right? So we're justified when we come to Christ. We're being sanctified as we, as we walk on you know, through, through our Christian lives, whether we have another year on Earth or 50 years on Earth. And then when we, when we come into eternity, glorified. So we're justified, we're sanctified, and we're glorified in eternity. And that glorification in eternity, every Christian will experience glorification. When, and that's good news. When, when we enter into heaven, every single, no, there's no Christian here who's gonna be disappointed that we're not glorified. We're all gonna be glorified. You could say some will be glorified more than others. That has to do with rewards. It has to do with how, how obedient we were to the Lord here, but we're still saved. We're in heaven. There's no question about any of that. All of our sins are forgiven and, and we are glorified in his presence. So that's, I say that because that's important in terms of how we go through this book. So uh, we, we went through a walloping three verses last time, and Lord willing, we're going to go through the rest of the chapter and maybe touch on a couple of verses in chapter two tonight. So um, let me read these first three verses again. And so God he doesn't start off with, you know, Paul, an apostle, you know, by the, by, the, by, the, by the grace of God. He doesn't do any of that. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and being the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That just, it just blows my mind every time you read through those three verses. It's just, it's just, it's a staggering passage and, 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 you could go on forever just trying to plumb the depths of everything that, that he's saying here. God, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Jewish Christians. How can you tell? Look at the pronouns he's using. Our fathers. God spoke to our fathers. He's including himself with them. We. He's a Jewish man writing to Jewish Christians. He's not, you know, Gentiles don't share those fathers. We do in a sense, but not by blood. They do here. God spoke to us, he says, to the, to the Hebrew nation. He spoke to us in time past, various ways. He spoke to us um, by, by the prophets. He spoke to us using dreams and visions. He, he did all kinds of things. He spoke through creation. Creation itself is, speaks. So you, you read uh, chapter 19, or, uh, Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 8. They all speak of how God speaks to us even through his creation. Sadly, sometimes we look right past it, but the order of creation, the beauty of creation, just the fact that anybody in the world, no matter what you believe about God, you can stand there at sunrise or at sunset and look at the sky and say, look at the beauty. It's breathtaking. Why? We share a common understanding of what beauty is. We may speak a different language, but there's a language we see, and we see beauty, and we understand that is beautiful. Beautiful. Well, uh, my father used to say that. It's beautiful. I'm going to Baltimore. Uh, you know, 
But anyhow, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful. You got, you got to say it like you're from Jersey, beautiful. Um, but it's, we, we understand there's a beauty there. What It testifies to God's glory, the order of creation. I mean, I'm not going to go through all that time, but all those things speak. He's saying God has spoken to us, the Hebrew nation, in the past through the prophets, having used dreams, having used visions, having used uh, all sorts of of techniques, you might say, to speak to our fathers and to the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through, and it's kind of interesting that if you look at your Bible, it it says through his son, but his is in italic. So uh, depending upon what translation you have, you have a King James or a New King James. I'm not sure what the New American Standard does. NIV doesn't do this, but in King James or New King James, if it uses italics, It's saying it's not in the manuscript. It was put there by the translators to make the reading easier. But he has in these last days spoken to us through son. He used to speak through dreams and visions and all these things, but now he's spoken to us in these last days through son. Now we know who he's speaking of. He's speaking to us of the son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe for us who the son is and and what he's like. And so, you know, we, we looked last week at the fact that Yes, Jesus is God, that he's self-existent. He was coexistent with the Father before anything was, before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth, the Son was. In the beginning was the Word, John says, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and he was with God in the beginning. Right? He was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him. Nothing was, he, nothing was made that has been made except by him. And then the word, the logos, the son, became flesh. And he dwelled among us. So, you know, we're, we're so familiar with that, but the depths, of the, you know, philosophically speaking, you could say, the depths of what all that really means that the one who is fully God, there's nothing about him that is in any way less than who you think God is, is the son of God, Jesus Christ. And yet we see him, now you and I see him through the word of God, through the Bible, through that lens. But imagine the early believers, in the, you know, early in the first century, who walked with him, who saw him. He fed them with, you know, uh, with loaves and fishes or, or they saw him do miracles. They heard him speak. The disciples who, who followed him, they saw him as a man. They saw him as a man. They lived with him. Have you ever really thought of what it was like to be one of those disciples? And not just one of the 12 because anybody who followed Jesus, right, was a disciple. If you follow Jesus, if you're born again, you're a Christian. If you follow him, You're a disciple. A disciple means one who learns. One who learns from him. That's all that disciple means. We have a tendency to take disciple, we equate it with apostle, we put halos over their heads, and we think, oh, I could never measure up because, you know, they sort of walk a foot and a half off the ground, and, you know, that's just not me. But that's what we think, but that's not true. What was it like for Jesus walking with the 12? What was it like for Peter and Andrew, for James and John, for, for all these guys being with him, sitting around and eating as they traveled from the Galilee over to Perea, you know, what we would call Jordan today, or back over into Judea, going up to Jerusalem multiple times in his ministry. You know, they weren't, they weren't staying in Hampton Inns. A little campfire, they'd broil some fish, you know, that sort of thing. They just eat. You know, and, and here's Jesus, beard. He wasn't wearing designer clothes. None of these guys were. If anybody was, it was probably Judas. He probably had a little bit more money. And if it wasn't money that he brought with him, we know that he was taking it out of the, the common purse that they had, right? But as they sat there and they ate together, you know, he's got crumbs in his beard. He's got greasy fingers from eating, just like the rest of the guys do. We think, oh, no, this is Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus. He was fully, fully man. Fully man, not half man, half God. Fully man, fully God. 
They couldn't comprehend it. They, they, they tried throughout their ministry or you know, throughout their time with him. And I, I know I mentioned this last time, but, you know, even you know, toward the end where, where Jesus is, is talking to them, John 14, and, and he's saying, you know, I, I, I'm going to die, and they're not getting all this. They're not getting this. And, and when, when Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, you're, but you're a man with crumbs in your beard and grease on your fingers. I mean, really, come on. We, we think we're so sophisticated in our understanding of who he is. Try to put yourself there and see a man who doesn't look in one regard any different than you do. He's just a Galilean guy. He speaks with the same weird hick accent that most of them did because the Galileans had a strange accent. He spoke like them. I mean, sure, the teachings, the miracles, he sure knew the word, but other than that, he was just a man just like them. I, I think it's good for us to, to remember that, and yet this one, fully God. Coexistent with the Father, self-existent, says that, uh, and I think this is image verse, interesting, verse three, being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Express image, uh, I might have mentioned last time, it's kind of like if you think of uh, a coin being minted, the idea, it's the exact image of, of you know, the impress that is on it. Uh, the, in Greek, the, the idea is he's the character. We get character out of that, the express image of character. So the full character of God is his because he's fully God. We have this tendency when we think of the Trinity is to think, well, there's the Father, he's the big heavy. And then there's the Son. We like him, he's a nice guy. I mean, uh, some of you remember Gail Irwin. I, as we, time goes on, a lot of people don't remember Gail Irwin that well, but Gail Irwin always had an interesting way of saying things. He was just an interesting guy just to look at. You know, he you know, was the only guy I knew who would wear a belt and suspenders. Um, and he just had a great way. If you ever want to read an interesting book, uh, it's called The Jesus Style. This is a high theology written in, probably with a total vocabulary of about 50 words. Um, it's, it's a great book. But I, he has his way, Gail. He's still alive. You can find him online. Uh, but he has this way of putting some of the most complex theology into very common words and also putting very common ideas that most people don't like to admit to into words as well. So we, we can find out that, yeah, we all do sort of relate I remember he used to say that, you know, a lot of people think that, well, you've got the Father, you know, we see him in the Old Testament, he can be pretty angry. But Jesus sort of is always there to sort of calm the Father down. He's always there to sort of calm him down, which, of course, is not true, right? But, but we do tend to look at him that way sometimes. You have, the, you have the Father in the Trinity, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And, and if anybody gets, gets the short end, it's the Holy Spirit. We tend to think, you know, he's just, he's just a poor stepchild over here. And if you're a stepchild, I don't mean it that way. But, you know, this common language, kind of the way we use it. And yet they're all fully co-equal, fully co-equal members of the Godhead. It's as far as I can go in explaining it. But it's just, it, that's, that's just what it is. And, and so, and we will spend our eternity understanding these things. I don't think it's going to be an intellectual pursuit. It's going to be one of those kind of pursuits, if you want to call it, or, or understandings. But in any event, so he's the, he, the, full, the, the full character, the express image of God's person who upholds all things by the word, by the rhema, by what comes from his lips, that kind of word, as opposed to logos, but the, the spoken word, the rhema, by what he says, upholding it all. When he had by himself, by himself, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So let's walk through some of these things. 
He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they have. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, remember who's writing this. Regardless of who you think the author is, okay, I say it's Paul, but regardless of who you think the author is, the author is a Hebrew Christian writing to other Hebrew Christians. And he's saying something that you and I take for granted. We believe this. But if you have Jewish friends, this is a bone in the throat right here. This is a bone in the throat. Find a Jewish friend who doesn't know Christ and tell them that God has a son. Tell them God has a son. Try that one on for size. You'll go on all night or it'll be a very short conversation. Because that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Except that it's in God's word. It's in God's word. He, he's not just saying this. He's quoting it. Where's he quoting it from? Anybody know? Psalm 2. He says in Psalm 2, oh, I love this psalm, but I can't read it all to you. And, but if you do get a chance sometime, sit down with Psalm 2. It's only 12 verses. Sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and trace who's doing the speaking. Trace, trace who's doing the talking. Because there's actually three, I'll say three persons who are speaking here. And you'll find out it's the Trinity speaking among themselves. You can find the Father is speaking, the Son is speaking, and the Spirit of God is also speaking. And when you look at it that way, you say, well, the Trinity just shines right through. But I, I can't go through it all. He says, uh, he, verse 5, he shall speak to them in his wrath. This would be, we would say, God the Father. He shall speak to them in his wrath. He'll distress them in his deep displeasure, saying, I have set my king. So this is the Father speaking. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, today you are my son. Now who's speaking? Messiah is speaking. Today I have begotten you. So the, the father is first speaking. Now the son says that the father says of him, I have begotten you. You are my son. And if you don't believe that, if you don't think it's, it, it, that's who is, is being addressed here. It says, all the way back up in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah, against the Lord, and against his anointed. Now, it says anointed, but anointed in the English, in Hebrew would be Moshiach, that, which ought to sound familiar. So, Taken, taken their stand against the Lord and against his Messiah. Those are the first, those are the primary ones that the people of the earth are against. This is, a, this is written by David, so this is written 3,000 years ago, and yet this is a very timely psalm. This is a, two, a 2022 psalm. This is for Klaus Schwab. Um, and, and he says there, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the son says, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. He goes on from there. So, so when the author says, we're back in Hebrews, when, when he says, of which of the, to which of the angels has he ever said, you're my son and today I have begotten you. Actually, if you're interested in another one, I won't read it to you, but if you're interested in another one of those, that would be Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30. Um, look that up for yourself later on. You know, who, who holds the wind in the hollows of his hand? Who holds the waters of the earth? Sounds like a very Hebrew type of poem. Um, and, you know, who has said, you're my son and I am your father? Well, again, you have it right there. So your Jewish friends don't want to believe this. Certainly their rabbis don't, Right? But the same is true of Islam. It says if you're familiar with you know, that golden dome structure on the, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, 
It says in Arabic all around the top of that that Allah does not beget nor has he begotten. Allah does not have a son. Well, of course that's true, he doesn't. But they're saying God. They, they mean by Allah, they mean God. Well, that's not true. God, the real God, of course, has begotten. And, and he does have a son. His name has been revealed to us as Yeshua. He delivers, he saves. That's what his name means. To which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? And again, uh, to which of the angels has he said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? Well, he's speaking there, if you're familiar with it, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build a, a, a temple for the Lord. He said, it's not right that I should be living in this palace and my God is in a tent. It's not right that God should be in a tent and I live in a palace. And Nathan the prophet comes back to him after God reveals it to Nathan, saying to him, you're a man of blood, you're not the one who's going to build the temple. You have blood on your hands, you're a warrior, but your son will do it. And then he goes one better, and it blows David's mind. He said, one of your sons will never fail to sit on God's throne on your throne, David's throne, which becomes God's throne. For all eternity, that will be the case. And it totally short-circuits David. He, did, he just wanted to build a house for God. And now God's saying, no, 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 I'm going to build a house for you. One of your sons will always sit on my throne for all eternity. And of course, that's the promise that is made by Gabriel to Mary, Luke chapter 1. The one, the one who will be in your womb, will sit on the throne of David. The throne of David didn't exist during that time. It's a throne, if you remember from our, from our Revelation study, that's the throne that's going to be existing in Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. And Christ himself is going to sit on that throne. So, you know, this, I mean, I know I can go on forever with this stuff, but you can just see how deeply this is connected and where the author is going with this. So he says, um, again, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, meaning, meaning the son, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. If you're trying to look up, uh, which is worthwhile to do, if you're just going to read it, that's fine. But if you want to track these things down, that's a lot of fun and it gives you a better understanding of what's going on here uh, in the book of Hebrews. But if you're trying to track down that one particular one, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, your Bible may say Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, but you'll never find it. I mean, you'll find Deuteronomy 32, 43, but it's not going to read like that because it's a quote out of the Greek translation, you know, anyhow, called the Septuagint. If your Bible should have LXX written to it in the footnotes, that just means that's the Greek translation. So it doesn't read like that uh, in the Hebrew or in the English. So anyhow, he goes on from here and he says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever." And forever, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, he says. And you, Jehovah, you, Lord, in the beginning, you laid. Now look, at this. I want you to get this. He's saying that the, that the Bible says, and it does, in Psalm 102, which is, a very, which is an oft-quoted psalm in the book of Hebrews, Psalm 102, so it's worth getting used to it. I mean, not just getting used to it, reading through. Psalm 102 and Psalm 110 you'll find quoted a lot in the book of Hebrews. And here's this quote, beginning in verse 25 through 27, that says, you Lord, take note. You don't see this very often in the New Testament. L-O-R-D, all caps. The editors want you to understand that this is Jehovah God who's being spoken of here. And yet, 
it's Jehovah God, and we have a tendency to, to be sloppy in our understanding and think Jehovah God means the Father. Well, Jesus is Jehovah God, right? So Psalm 102 is telling us, based upon what Hebrews is telling us, that God himself, who's the Father of the Son, said, you, Jehovah, calling the Son, Jehovah. You, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's saying that when we say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we know that to be true, right? We all say that we believe that, but who did the creative work? The one who actually did the creative work. The one who laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which member of the Godhead did that work? It was the Son of God who did that work. It's not the Father. It's the Son of God who did that work. Remember it this way. The Son is the express image of all that God is. Or here's another way of looking at it. When we read through uh, John, John likes to use that word logos, right? In the beginning was the word, or in the beginning was the logos. We translate that as word. What is a word? What is a word? A word is an expression of a thought, right? A thought has no, uh, you could say, a thought has no clothing to it until you've, until you've given it letters and put it into a form that you can pronounce. So sounds are sort of like the clothing you would put on a thought. You with me? Yeah. It sound a little weird to you maybe, but think of it that way because we have lots of thoughts, but until you express that thought, they're just bouncing off the inside of our brain somewhere. But when you express the thought with words, now you've captured an idea and you're putting it out there for someone to interact with. Jesus is the full expression of the Father. He's the logos. He's, he's, he's the clothing to the words, you might say, or it's clothing to the thoughts. And so, and so when, when we, when, then when we come down to this, he says, your throne is forever. A scepter of righteousness is your kingdom. You love righteousness. You hate lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you because you're Messiah. You're the anointed one. And, and he's anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all of your companions. You, Lord, in the beginning, you laid the foundation. The Son of God is the one. He wasn't called Jesus then. We keep calling him Jesus. The Son did that, okay? In, in the beginning, it was the Son who laid the foundation of the earth. And all of the heavens, the solar system we exist in, the galaxy that our solar system goes around in, all of the galaxies uh, in, a, in, our, uh, you know, in our nearby, you know, that are, and the Milky Way is part of that, all of that. It's all the work of his hand. And yet all of that work, he says, they will perish, but you will remain. Everything will perish. Everything in in existence, everything that we know, everything that we see, everything in space, everything is moving. We often say it this way, everything's moving from a state of order to a state of disorder. I'm not talking about your teenager's rooms. I'm, I'm just saying everything moves from a state of order to a state of disorder. Everything moves, actually everything in life, everything in the universe, everything moves from heat to cold. All energy moves from hot to cold. Everything moves from energy to non-energy. Everything moves from order into a vacuum. Every, that's, everything has to move, can only move one direction. It doesn't go the other way. Everything in the universe is moving to a state of uniform temperature, and it's chaos. Everything is going that way, but even so, he will remain. No matter what happens in all of this, he remains. He's the one who, who remains. They'll all perish, but you'll remain. They'll all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up and they'll be changed, but you are the same and your years will never fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Psalm 110, verse one. 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what God promises to the Son. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Yeah, those are all the angels, but not the Son of God. And angels, if we think about angels for a minute, angels are are so grand. Uh, you know, uh, you know, sadly, in our day and age, angels have sort of been, um, uh, what's the word? They've been minimized in a lot of ways. For the longest time, I don't see it as much as I used to, but for the longest time, people would you know, wear little guardian angel, little gold pins on their, I hope you don't, if you do, I, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying, um, you see that around, but I, I think a lot of angels, if they could express an opinion, they'd, they'd be, really insulted to think that we thought of them as something you could pin to your sweater. Or this idea that, you know, you know we think of cherubs. Our idea, and I know for me, growing up, I, you know, it's the Valentine's Day, you see, you know, candy in the shape of a heart, and you see these little, you know, these little naked babies with bows and arrows, and we say, oh, they're cherubs. No, 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 no. <laughs> A cherub, and then there are cherubim. Cherubim just is a plural. It just means more than one. A cherub is a rank of angel. There's Michael, the archangel. People debate this, but based upon the fact that there's a definite article used, Michael, the archangel, suggests that there's only one of him. Only one. Um... Gabriel, we don't know what rank he is. Um, and, and just because we know some of the ranks doesn't mean that's all of the ranks. Like there are seraphim. Seraph is the singular. Uh, seraphim means burning ones. A seraph is a burning one. It doesn't mean the angels are on fire. It just means when you look at them, they're full of fire. Um, uh, the... the in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, um, I recall mentioning this, a, I don't know, a month or so ago. But Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, in the, king that, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had this, you know, I'll say a vision, but it actually seemed like he was transported into the throne room of God in heaven. In the year the king Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one, each of the seraphim, had six wings. With two wings he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other, or to another, so there were many of them, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house, the temple in heaven, was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Jehovah of the armies, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of the armies of heaven. It's, isn't it amazing how unimpressed we are. We've read these and we go, oh yeah. Like, what did the dude see? I mean, think about it. That, that he would, would say to him, here's a guy who, if you go back to chapter five, he's going, woe to you and woe to you and woe to you and woe to you for all these different reasons. You come to chapter six, he says, woe to me. <laughs> right? I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. He said, I'm totally undone. And one of the seraphs, it said, flew over toward him, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin has been purged. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, there's, there's so much in that chapter. I'm not going into it. But here's what I want you to see. They're called burning ones. And if one of these angels, that's called a burning one, needs 
tongs to take a coal from the altar that's in heaven, we're dealing with a whole kind of different fire in heaven than you and I think of when we think of fire. Okay, we're, we have to get outside of our own realities in order to just see how other this reality is. So you have, the, you have archangel, you have seraphim, you have cherubim, and these are mighty warrior angels. You see them around the throne, the living ones, the, the four living creatures that we, they're, they're called in, in uh, chapter four of Revelation, chapter one, and what's the next chapter, eight? Yeah, but anyhow, in Ezekiel, um, these are cherubim also. Uh, Von Donneken back in the 70s said they're, fly, they're, they're flying saucers. They're not. They're, they're, they're cherubim. These are, these are angels. It's a whole different rank, a whole different kind of angel. Lucifer seems to have been one of the cherubim. Actually, he was, he was a worship leader. And everything went wrong because of worship leaders. That's a joke. Musicians tell that joke. But <laughs> not because of ours. But, all right. But, uh, but it is interesting when you study it to see the power of music to do good or do evil, right? Um, and like I say, uh, Gabriel it doesn't say what kind of angel, what rank of angel that he is. Uh, his, his name, uh, Gabriel Gaboriel, uh, a mighty one of God. So he's, there may be a rank called the Gibors, you know, the mighty ones. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, so there seem to be other ranks. But anyway, for our purposes tonight, that's enough. But, um, so there are all these, different, all these different types or ranks of angels that exist. He says here, uh, just going back for a moment, he said, everything will pass away. They'll all perish, but you'll remain, verse 11. They'll all grow old. Everything will pass away. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Um, I, and I, I say that, I'm going back to that for a moment just to underscore. We, I, I find for myself, and I'm a guy who, you know, it's kind of, it's what I do. I study God's word. I, I try to teach God's word. But it's easy to get, if we're not careful, mm -hmm. to play a little fast and loose sometime with the word of God and, and not take seriously this, the Bible says. My word is eternal in the heavens. Or Psalm 138, verse 2, that God exalts his word even above his name. I mean, you study the word, you don't have to study it for long, and you find out just how, how jealous God is about his name. And yet, he exalts his word even above that. How important it is, then, that we take his word seriously. Not just to say, it's the Bible, of course it is. But how seriously we need to take it, angels. He gives his angels charge over you. It says in uh, Psalm 91, he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Now, you know, we, we see how the devil uses that in the temptation in the wilderness, but it's still a promise of God. Now think about this. It's a promise of God to you. Angels, see here, verse 14, angels are spirits. They can appear as men, but they're spirits. But they're ministering spirits. They, uh, to minister is to be a servant. That's the idea. They're here as servants. They serve God, and they serve you and me. They serve the saints. We have a tendency when, when we see anyone who is of great power, because that's how it works. That's how it works in man's economy. Anybody who has more power than me, I'm supposed to serve that person. That's the way we see things. But God loves you so much, number one, he sent his son. He, he, he already had planned it before he ever created everything. That he 
would give up everything for you and me? You know, we've been through this before, but it's a good question. You know, when we think of creation, physical creation, I mean, physical creation is glorious. It's amazing, right? And it's, it's just when you look at the intricacy of, of creation, the order of creation, how deep it goes. And, you know, we, we played a little bit with some of that on Sunday, you know, going down to the smallest or out to the very large and all that. Could God do it again? New York Minute, right? It's no big deal for him to do that again. What did it cost God to speak everything into existence? What did it cost him? Nothing. He just spoke it. And it was. Now compare that to coming in the form of a man and, and giving himself up for you. Because the greatest thing, the, the thing that separates us from him is our sin. He didn't create the sin. It's like, it's, and you could say, I mean, I'm being really flip with this, but it's not his problem. It's our problem. But he loves you so much that he sent his son. What did it cost God to do that? What does it cost God to do that? Everything. The idea of doing it again, are you kidding me? It, you could make the point that it virtually bankrupted God to do that. Now, we don't appreciate that. We don't think about it until we're kind of forced into a corner logically to have to think it through. You know, someday when we get to, to chapter 12, right? <laughs> For the joy that was set before him, he, Christ, endured the cross, despising its shame. What joy was set before him? What was the joy that was set before him? To be with you forever. That means, and I'm not, I'm not making this up, just work through the logic, okay? Um, some of you have been through this one with me before, but what's a used car worth? Whatever you can get for it, right? Okay? Whatever someone's willing to pay, that's its value. You can say, I love this car, the places I've been, and, and it's a great shape, and oh, the tire pressure. You know, it's just wonderful. You know, I want 10000 Someone says, ah, it's not worth anything. I'll give you 200 bucks. If no one's coming by, you'll probably sell it for whatever you can get for it, right? Right? Now, what are you worth? See, when we see ourselves, we think about ourselves. We think, I'm a no good for nothing. I mean, people really know who I am. Well, most people don't really know who you are, but sure, surely God does, right? And yet, he was willing to pay the price for you. You say, well, he paid the price for somebody else. I mean, I was just thrown in. You know, no, 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 he paid the price for you. He really did, he paid the price for you. He paid the price for you. So what does that make your value? I mean, really think this through. Don't just think, well, what's the right answer for the Bible study? But what, is, what are you really worth? You are equivalent in value. Some of you are going to walk out or want to walk out and say, that, that sounds heretical. But that means you're equivalent in value to the Son himself. Otherwise, why would he give the Son for you? So you're equivalent in value in that regard. That's how valuable you are. And that's how valuable is that person you don't really dig that much. <laughs> Including those who aren't saved, by the way, because he, he died for them as well. He died for them too. They just haven't received it yet. So, I mean, I, I just want you to think about that. We can walk through the verses, and it can be kind of interesting. And some of you say, oh, that's great. And others are like, I'm bored. I don't know what's going on here, right? But you go through all the theology, you get down where the rubber meets the road. It says you are of inestimable value. To which of the angels did he ever say this? None. But angels, the son, it, this is who the son is. 
And this is what he did for you. And by the way, you think of what the angels did in all these places. You can walk through the scripture and look at all the different places where angels show up. You know, we, we looked at um, in chapter six of Second Kings on Sunday and how, you know, Elijah prays, Lord, you know, open the servant's eyes so that he may see. And he looks and there's the hill is filled with, you know, basically angel, an angel army, right? We get to chapter 19. 185,000 Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. And one night, two angels, after dinner, they went out and they killed 185,000 Assyrians. The scripture says, it, it reads more like this in Hebrew, but when they woke up in the morning, they were dead. You know, you, you read these stories about the angels or, or you read about uh, Peter, you know, he's in prison, Acts chapter 12, and the angel comes and wakes him up. So come on, we got to get going. And Peter gets moving, you know, and the angel opens, you know, the gate and he starts going through the gate. And, and then the angel has to say, uh, you know, put on your cloak, like get dressed, man. And <laughs> Peter's just thinking, this is a cool dream, you know. He's not realizing it's really happening until he's out in the street, you know. And, and it's like, oh, that really happened to me. Uh, or uh, Herod, Antipas, I always get my Herods mixed up, but in, uh, in Caesarea, later on in chapter 12, where he's wearing this gold, you know, uh, robe, and the people are trying to schmooze him. And they said, oh, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And because Herod didn't deflect that honor and took it himself, an angel came along and touched him, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. You know, angels do a lot of things. Some good, some you don't want to have happen to you. Or you think of the, the, the places, Jesus, in the wilderness, right? Forty days, he's in the wilderness, and angels came and strengthened him, right? Or there in the garden, as he's praying, and he's, and he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Angel comes and strengthens him. But you don't read that when he's on the cross, he wasn't strengthened by an angel. When he had by himself purged our sins. He didn't get any help from the Father. No help from the Spirit. No help from an angel. He did it by himself for the joy that was set before him. He endured all of that until he would say, it's finished, it's paid for, to tell us that. These angels are ministering spirits. They're there to help us, and they do. They're in here now. We've talked about this before. And they do. They serve us. You know, I, you know we can joke around, and I'm sure we are going to have some interesting conversations with some of our angels one day. Because um, angels, you know, they, they don't get born. They've been around as long as creation has. They've seen a lot of people. They can't read our minds, although I have a pretty good sense that they... They've seen enough people, they know how our minds work, right? And what areas can tempt us. And so can the evil angels. And so this idea of um, guardian angels, yeah, they're not called that in the scripture, but they're there. And even so, he says, and we'll leave it here. Therefore, chapter two, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard. He's not talking to people saying you're in danger of losing your salvation. But what is he saying? We must give the more earnest heed. We should pay attention, he's saying. And we should, we should think more clearly. And we should, we should be more deliberate in and our love for God, in deliberate in our love for God, deliberate in the choices that we make. We should be that way. Why? Lest we drift away. Yeah. He's not saying lest we lose our salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is the, when you read the book of Hebrews, you're not thinking that this is a book. On the surface, you're not thinking this is a book about the kingdom that's coming, the millennial kingdom. It's my personal belief that it is all about that in many ways. It's about the kingdom that's coming and the rewards that none of us want to lose. So let's be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in trying to figure this out and figure that out. Work at it to try to understand what's going on, and I'll, I'll lead you through that. 
But understand, he's saying, take heed that you be deliberate in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ so that we don't drift away. Drift away from our high calling. Drift away, even, and many of us understand that, drift away from even what it was when we were first saved and just how glorious that was. And some of us drift into the yuck of the world. Some of us drift into theology as if that's godly. No, it's a study of God. It doesn't mean it's godliness. We can drift into many things. The devil, you know, we looked at this when we were in Ephesians. The devil just offers you the menu. You can choose anything you want off that menu as long as it's not walking with Jesus Christ. Either one of those choices is a step toward the drift. Either one of those choices. It could be serving in Sunday school. It could be doing all kinds of great... I'm not saying those things are bad. What I'm saying is, first and foremost, is that our lives be given to, to the Lord Jesus on a regular basis. That we seek to be led by His Spirit. That we spend time in His Word. So that to feed, not to become big fat heads of knowledge, but to feed on Him and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, so that we become exactly what God said he wants to do with us, that we become conformed into his image. Next week, chapter 2. We're going to get cooking now. Let's stand together.